Good morning. Today's reading is from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Listen to God's word. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jerry. Won't you now join me in a word of prayer? Oh, Heavenly Father, we long to hear a word from your word, a word that will touch us and inspire us and instruct us and empower us to go out and live as your people. We are open and receptive for whatever your spirit wants to do this morning. Please do a good work in us, we pray in Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, several years ago, there was a popular reality TV show, I think on the Fox Network, called Kitchen Nightmare, and it featured celebrity chef and restaurant expert Gordon Ramsay. And what he would do, he would go to restaurants that were struggling, that were on the verge of, of closing, and he would do an inspection and evaluation, and he would help them discover what they needed to do, how they needed to change in order to survive in the very difficult world of restaurants. Now, uh, what he would typically do is he would go in and inspect every different part of the restaurant, all the different aspects of running a restaurant, and he'd interview the owners and the staff and the cooking uh, chefs and all of that. And uh, uh, inevitably, they'd get to a point, sort of the, the main point in, the, in the, the show, where he would call them all together and reveal what was wrong or what items were wrong in their restaurant. And he would do this with a very stern, kind of harsh uh, attitude and created a lot of drama. And I guess, you know, that's what you need if you're going to have a reality TV show. Lots of drama around it. So I didn't watch the show very often, uh, but I did catch one particular episode that sticks in my mind. It was a, a restaurant that, by all accounts, should be doing very well. Uh, the, the decor was attractive and modern. The, the staff was well-trained and professional. The owners were savvy businessmen who knew what they were doing. The, it was in a good location. The, the, the menu was reasonably priced. Every reason to do well as a restaurant. And yet, this particular restaurant was really struggling to attract and retain customers. And so Gordon Ramsay went in there and he did his thing. And finally, the, the key moment of the show came when he was going to reveal what was wrong. And interestingly enough, it wasn't the decor or the staff or the business savvy of the owners. It wasn't the location. The thing that was wrong with this restaurant was the food. Uh, Ramsey had ordered six different entrees on the menu and had laid them out on this table. And he went one at a time down each entree explaining why it was so bad and awful. And they needed to change the way they were preparing their menus and the food they were serving. And the cooking staff had to go. 
The point was clear. It's important to pay attention to many factors when you're running a restaurant, but there's always one factor that is most important. The quality of the food. And if the quality of the food isn't right, then nothing else you do is really going to matter. It's the main thing. It's true in a lot of areas in our lives, isn't it? I mean, when you think about it, to have a great marriage, to raise children who are respectful and honoring to God and well-adjusted, to have good health, to be wise with money, to sustain a meaningful career. There are various areas in our lives where really there are a handful of critical factors for success, but there's always one factor that's more important than any of the others. And if you don't get this one right, then nothing else will go right either. A good and helpful exercise for you and me would to get alone in a quiet place this week and think over the major categories of our lives, the, the major areas of our lives that are important to us and, and just ask the question, what are the half dozen important things to be successful in this area of my life? And then narrow it down and say, what's the one thing that's more important than all the others, the, the keystone issue or factor that if I don't get this right, nothing else will go right. You know, in today's uh, scripture lesson, Jesus makes it clear that if we're to live a kind of life that God wants us to live, if we're to experience the life God has for us, we have to be clear on what's really important. So welcome back to a series that we began several weeks ago on the life and teaching of Jesus. Right now we're looking at the stories of Jesus. And today we're looking at a very interesting story, a story that is well known to many people. But it's a story where Jesus is really pointing to what it means to experience life in the kingdom of God, a life of joy and peace, an abundant life. And he wants us to see the main thing, the number one thing we got to get right. And if we don't get it right, nothing else matters. And the main thing is the attitude of the heart. The attitude of our heart. It's like the food at a restaurant. If you don't have it right, nothing else will be right. If our heart isn't right towards God, if our heart isn't right toward others, if our heart isn't right toward life itself, we won't be right. And as a consequence, our relationships won't be right either. The, the heart of the matter is it's a matter of the heart. And that's why so many of, of Jesus' stories and so much of his teaching focused around the internal attitudes of the heart rather than the external behaviors. Because Jesus understood it's the attitude of the heart that often drives the behaviors. But Jesus also recognizes that sometimes you can have the external behaviors looking right. But the attitude of the heart is still wrong. And that brings us to today's story. Jesus talks about two men who go up to the temple to pray. And uh, he tells us that uh, one of these men who go to the temple to pray is, is a Pharisee. Now, we who have benefited from 2,000 years of Christian teaching, when we hear the word Pharisee, we think what? Hypocrite, scoundrel, someone who's holier than thou and judgmental. kind of person you wouldn't want to be like. Religious on the outside, but corrupt on the inside. But in Jesus' day, that's not how they viewed the Pharisees. The Pharisees were well respected. They were devout and holy men who seek to honor God with their lives. And most Pharisees were very serious about trying to please God. 
And so we have to remember that as we hear the story. The Pharisee goes up to the temple to pray. And the listeners in Jesus' day would have said, oh, that's what good Pharisees do. They're so holy, they're so righteous. And then uh, Jesus then says, another guy goes into the temple to pray as well. He's a tax collector. And, and today, while we may not be best friends with our local IRS agent, the reality is, in Jesus' day, tax collectors were notorious scoundrels. They were considered evil and corrupt and immoral. They were sellouts to the Roman Empire. At this time in the the life of the Hebrew people, the Roman Empire controlled Jerusalem and Israel. And uh, they wanted to be free from the Romans, but the, the Romans were so strong they couldn't free themselves from the Roman Empire. And so the tax collectors were those who said, might as well join them because we can't beat them. And they became part of the Roman taxing agency. And they would go around demanding taxes to support the Roman government. And the local Jewish people hated the tax collectors. They saw them as sellouts and, and, and they, they, they thought of them as the lowliest of the low, traitors and turncoats. And so Jesus is setting up a comparison. And this was a common method of storytelling and teaching in Jesus' day. A comparison story comparing two people. One would be a positive example to follow. The other would be a negative warning to avoid. But what makes this story of Jesus so unique is He turns the tables. Ordinarily, it would be the Pharisee lifted up as someone to follow and the tax collector as someone to avoid. But Jesus changes it as He tells the story. The Pharisee, he lets us in on the the prayer of the Pharisee. And the Pharisee is is focusing on his good life. How he fasts and how he tithes. He's kind of bragging to God about his good deeds. And again, when we hear that in our own modern day minds, we think, what a terrible thing to do. Brag to God in your prayers about how good you are. But again, in Jesus' day, this would have been a normal way of praying. In fact, the, uh, the, the Jewish man had a common prayer they would pray every morning, and it went like this. God, I thank you that I am not a Gentile, that means a non-Jew, that I am not a woman, sorry ladies, and uh, that I am not a sinner. Uh, this way of praying was very common. So, so this Pharisee is praying a prayer, uh, thanking God that he's so good, and that he's not like this tax collector over here, and he's not an, an adulterer or a sinner or a scoundrel, and he's bragging about his good deeds. I fast. Twice a week. Now you have to understand, in those days, fasting was required one day a year. Fasting is going without food. And uh, it was required one day out of the year, the Day of Atonement. All Hebrews had to fast. But the Pharisees believed you get extra credit with God if you would fast twice a week. So they fasted twice a week, usually on Mondays and Thursdays. And so this Pharisee is reminding God of how he's very regular in his fasting as a way of showing his intentional devotion to God. And then tithing, there was a, a rule that the Hebrews were supposed to tithe the first 10% of all of their, their regular income. But there were exceptions to that. If you received an inheritance, you didn't have to tithe that. If you got a little bonus money for some extra work, you didn't have to tithe that. If, if you got money as a gift for something, you didn't have to tithe that. But the Pharisee says, hey, not only do I tithe of my regular income, anything extra I get in, I tithe that as well. So he's going above and beyond the expectations of holiness for his day. And he's thankful that he's that way and he's not like the, the sinners and that tax collector over there. And then Jesus lets us in on the prayer of the tax collector. The tax collector 
whatever has happened in his life, we're not, Jesus doesn't say, but he's gotten to a place in his life where all the camouflage is stripped away and he sees himself for who he really is. A person in need of forgiveness and grace. A person who has made poor choices in his life. A person who, who without God is, is headed in the wrong direction. And when he sees this about himself, he cries out for mercy. Jesus says he beats his chest. You know, today when we think of somebody beating their chest, we think of somebody kind of being braggadocious, like the, the quarterback who scores a touchdown, beating his chest in the end zone, like, look at me, aren't I great? Well, in Jesus' day, to beat your chest was a sign of deep sorrow and contrition. You were so sorry for what you had done. And then the, he, he can't even look up toward heaven. The typical way to pray in those days was to, to look up to heaven as you prayed. But he couldn't do that. He, he could only look down in shame. And he says, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, those hearing this story that Jesus tells would have thought of that tax collector and said to themselves, what a pitiful sight, that pitiful tax collector. We're so glad we're not like him. But Jesus would have said, you see that tax collector and you think he's a pitiful sight? In God's eyes, he's a beautiful sight. In fact, this tax collector is made right with God and the Pharisee is not. And that would have shocked Jesus' hearers. They would have thought Jesus would have done what most teachers in that era would have done, which is said, you want to be like the Pharisee, not the tax collector. Yay, Pharisee. Whoa, tax collector. But Jesus flips that. And then to make sure his audience understands what he's saying, he says, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. But those who humble themselves will be exalted. Isn't that a great story? And what Jesus is getting at is the attitude of the heart really matters. It's not just what we do, it's why we do it and the attitude with which we do it. Like food in a restaurant. If the attitude ain't right, ain't nothing else going to be right. Amen? See, the Pharisee reminds us that it's possible to do the right thing with the wrong attitude. Isn't it? I mean, parents, you understand this. Right? Your kids get in a fight, and you say to one child, go apologize to your sister. I don't want to. Go apologize anyway. Sorry. Right? Right? right thing, wrong attitude. Child wants to go to McDonald's for dinner. Oh, can we please go to McDonald's? Oh, let's go to McDonald's. Please, can we go to McDonald's? Instead, you go to Burger King. Right? After dinner, child is kind of disappointed, didn't get to go to McDonald's. You say, well, what do you say? We took you to Burger King. What do you say? Thank you. Right? We get it, parents, don't we? We force our children to behave in certain ways, but we can't always control their attitude. I see it sometimes in church. I see it sometimes in church. I can tell who was forced to come to church. <laughs> right? I'm here on the outside, but I'm not here on the inside. Right? I get it. I get it. But attitude really matters to Jesus. And it's possible to do the right thing with the wrong attitude. And let me be clear what Jesus is saying. He's not condemning religious deeds in this story. The fact that the Pharisee fasts and tithes and prays and goes to the temple on a regular basis, that is a good thing. Jesus is not condemning the spiritual disciplines that help us stay strong in our faith. Jesus is condemning the attitude that says, because I do these things, I'm better than anybody else. It's why we do them. The attitude behind them and the attitude with which we do them that makes all the difference. 
Right? The guy says, well, God doesn't seem real to me, so I don't go to church. Okay? Maybe uh, you don't go to church because God doesn't seem real to you. But if you would come to church with the right attitude, God would begin to be real to you. I don't pray. I don't do these things because it, it, it doesn't do anything for me. Well, maybe if the attitude is right, you'll start to experience what God promises we would experience when we do these things. See, if we're doing things with a bad attitude, we, we don't experience the goodness that these things are supposed to provide for our lives. And that's especially true with the attitude of pride, which is what the Pharisees' big issue was was pride and arrogance. What he was doing was coming from an attitude of pride. He, he thinks he's better than everybody else because he does these things. And what's sad about the Pharisee is he doesn't even see his pride. He doesn't recognize it. He's blind to it. And here's the truth about pride and arrogance in your life and in mine. We see it in other people. We really don't see it in ourselves very often. Right? We can notice it in other people. We don't notice it in ourselves, but it's often there. We're just blind to it. And it leaks out. It leaks out in our thoughts, our words, our tone of voice, our behaviors, our attitude. Right? It shows up in anger. Anger is primarily a pride response. Something happened. I don't like it. Now I'm mad because my my pride, my desire to be in control has been threatened by something, right? It, it expresses itself in frustration. I want something and don't get it. I, I want to control something and don't get it. I get angry at that because it, the universe is demonstrating that I don't have control over everything and I'm mad about that. It shows up in resentment toward other people. When they get a compliment or when somebody says something nice about them and we don't like them and we say, gosh, people don't say nice things about me. We start to get resentful through that. that. That's pride. Arrogance. The discontentment we sometimes feel when we compare ourselves to others. The, the downright contempt we feel toward those we think are inferior to us. All of that is a pride response. So much of the anger and the violence and the problems we experience in our lives are actually rooted in pride. Hey, sometimes we are going to get angry, but how we choose to express that angry says a lot about our ability to deal with pride in our life. Jesus is showing us that the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. You can't legislate the human heart. You can pass all kinds of laws and all kinds of programs, but you can't legislate the, the pride that exists in the human heart and the way that gets expressed. And a lot of us are blind to it and deceived by it. It becomes a cancer to the soul. So how do we deal with it? How are we, you and I, who seek to live our lives in a way that honors God, how are we supposed to deal with the pride that we're often blind to in our own life? Well, first of all, you gotta, you got to take responsibility for your own feelings and attitudes. Now, it's interesting that Jesus says, those who humble themselves will be lifted up. God expects us to humble ourselves. Life isn't going to naturally humble you. You have to humble yourself. You have to adopt that attitude, that posture. Otherwise, we start to think like the Pharisee. The, the natural human pride will lead us in a certain direction. And as we reflect on the story, I think of, of two, uh, two ways we can 
deal with pride in our lives. And here's the first one. Uh, engage in regular and ruthless self-examination. Regular and ruthless self-examination and confession. Really. Uh, how different would the prayer of the Pharisee been if he'd taken some time to examine himself before he started congratulating himself in the presence of God? If he had prayed the prayer of Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Examine me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any unclean way in me. And then lead me to the way everlasting. See, it's the role of the Holy Spirit to cooperate with us as we examine ourselves. And the purpose of self-examination is not to get down on yourself. It's to just get honest with yourself. Because the reality is we are... We're often more sinful than we want to recognize in our own life because our pride wants to blind us to our own sinfulness so that we don't recognize the, the need we have to be humbled before a holy and righteous God. You know, in professional golf, there's a training center out in Carlsbad, California. It's called the Kingdom. And pro, pro golfers go there with their coaches, uh, especially when they're struggling with their game. And when you go to the Kingdom with your coach, they put you in this room uh, that's got cameras all around it. And you practice your swing, and they're recording everything you do on a camera. And then you go sit down with your coach, and you go frame by frame through all these pictures to try to figure out what is wrong with my swing, my stance, the way I'm holding the club, whatever it is. Professional golfers, the best in the game, understand the need for regular reflection and examination on how they're doing what they're doing in order to get better. Pro football teams understand this as well. After every pro football game, the week ahead, is they do two things. They prepare for the game coming up, but they also look back over the previous game, don't they? They sit down with their coaches. They go over the game film. Every single play gets looked at and analyzed. Every single player on the field, what they did, what they didn't do. Were they successful? Were they not successful? What can they do to improve? See, self-examination and reflection, and confession, and acknowledging uh, our, our faults and flaws and weaknesses is a healthy thing to do. It keeps us humble before the Lord. Practical ways we can do this is regularly review your day. Uh, St. Ignatius, who uh, started a holy group called the Jesuits, uh, used to have what he called, he teaches students the prayer of examine. The prayer of examine is twice a day, once at noon and then once before you go to bed, you take about 10 minutes and you review your day. When you, when you do your 12 noon prayer of examine, you review the morning. And when you go to bed at night, you review the afternoon. And you take 10 minutes just to review what you did, what you said, what you thought, how you felt, how you responded or reacted to different things. And as you're going through that, you thank the Lord for places where you see His grace and His strength for helping you, but you also acknowledge those places where you fell short where you did what you know you shouldn't do, you thought what you shouldn't think, or you said what you wish you hadn't said, and you confess that openly and honestly to a merciful God. And the reason you do it twice a day is because the longer you go without self-examination, the less you remember. Right? See, many of us have our short memory to thank for our clean conscience. Right? But if we will be intentional about reviewing and keeping short accounts, we'll discover... Man, there's some stuff in me that God wants me to deal with and work through so I can get better. That, so that's one way to do it. Be, because review, reflection, creates a self-awareness that then prevents blindness. 
Another way we can do this is through the use of questions. Examining ourselves through questions. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist, did this. He had what he called his 22 questions. I won't read them all to you. Uh, but uh, at the end of each day, Wesley would review prayerfully his day by asking certain questions and inviting the Holy Spirit to speak to his heart. Here are just a sampling of his questions. Did I try to create the impression that I am better than I really am? Did I confidentially pass on to others what was said to me in confidence? Was I a slave to dress, friends, money, or food? Was I self-conscious, self-pitying, or self-justifying? Was I jealous, impure, critical, irritable, touchy, or ungrateful? Man, I'm just convicted by that question right there. Did I pray before I spent money? How did I use my spare time? Did I grumble or complain? I'll put these questions on our Facebook page, and you may want to modify some of them. Wesley not only did that, but when he started small groups, uh, he, he required that when there's his small groups gathered every week for Bible study and prayer, that they would spend time going over all 22 questions and answering honestly to one another how they were doing in those areas. There's something about asking honestly good, piercing thought-provoking questions that can lead to a spirit of self-examination and confession. So one of, the, one of the great spiritual disciplines we Christians have lost is the discipline of self-examination and confession. But when we give the Holy Spirit the opportunity, He will reveal it to us, not to make us feel awful, but to wake us up so we can confess and be forgiven. Right? See, if your goal is to become more Christ-like, If your goal in life is to become more loving and gracious and joyful and generous, if your goal is to learn from your mistakes so you don't constantly repeat them and develop your character to be a Christ-like character, if that's your goal, then self-examination is your friend. But if your goal is like the Pharisee, if your goal is performance management, if your goal is just to say, hey, I'm good enough, and you want to prove how good you are, then self-examination and confession will be your enemy. And you won't do it. So review your day. Try the prayer of examining. Try asking questions. That's that's the first thing we can do. Here's the second thing we do to fight pride. Reflect upon the mercy and grace of God. And what God has done for us on the cross of Jesus. Right? When we stand and look at the cross and remember what Jesus has done there, we begin to realize we have no reason to boast about anything except what Christ has done for us. It's all a gift of God's mercy and grace. People often ask me, what's the difference between mercy and grace? Well, they're two sides of the same coin. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. The Bible says what we deserve is death, eternal separation from God, eternal punishment, rejection. That's what we deserve because of our sinfulness, the wages of sin. That's what we deserve. But God in His mercy provides forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. We don't, we don't deserve God's love. We don't des- we don't. God freely chooses to love us. So whether it's the mercy, not getting what we do deserve, or the grace, getting what we don't deserve, either way, God's, God's love is made known through Jesus and through the cross. His shed blood. And that should destroy any pride we have. John Newton uh, was a slave trader who was a very vile and wicked man, brutal. And uh, 
he came to faith in Christ and it changed his life. He became a, a pastor, a preacher, and a hymn writer. He wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. You're probably familiar with that one. And, and as he neared the end of his life, he had memory problems. He got dementia. And uh, one day he was talking to a friend. He says, you know, I'm finding it harder and harder to remember things. But he says, but these two things I remind myself and these two things I always remember. I am a great sinner. And Jesus is a great Savior. You know, the truth of the matter is, life has a way of giving you and me spiritual dementia. And we forget that we are great sinners. And we forget that Jesus is a great Savior. So meditating upon the cross helps us remember and remind us that anything good we do in our life is not an attempt to earn God's love. It's a response to God's love. We don't do it to prove ourselves better than anybody else. We do it with gratitude and joy because Jesus loves sinners like you and me. Amen. So Jesus tells us the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector to remind us that when we come before God, whether it's to worship or to pray or to give or to do anything, attitude really matters. Nothing destroys our relationships like pride and ego. But with self-examination and confession and with meditating upon the cross, we can keep pride from taking root in our heart and our lives. Some things in life are major. Some things in life are minor. This, Jesus tells us, is major. Your attitude. Because the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart.